Welcome to our podcast, Revival in Jesus' Way. Disciple making is Jesus' way to change the world. This is the one mission that his people should focus on. There is only one way, his way, to create lasting transformation. And God is calling his church to wake up. I'm your host, Tim Cahill. And I am Yin Yan Xu. You are at our Christian Foundation series, episode 5. Is the Old Testament made up? Three evidences to prove them wrong. Again, foundation theories and a list of basic topics which have to be settled in a new Christian's life for future healthy growth. We hope this series helps our listeners in two ways. First, for your own growth. Second, to help others to have clarity through your explanation. Because people won't just get it naturally. Now, Tim, what do you think, biblically, uh, what causes revival? Mm, yeah, this is a really important question, and a big reason why we come up with the podcast and the blog and those things. Mm-hmm. Right. The podcast is revival in Jesus' way. That's so right. We have some messages <laughs> to share, right? Yeah. And people talk about revival all the time. Mm-hmm, they do, yeah, and it's really important. Everybody's always thinking about, well, not everybody, but many people, many Christians are thinking about, well, how does revival happen? How does that take place? And then what we're saying is that actually revival is just the Christian life just lived in the way that it's meant to be lived. And that's why it's revival in Jesus' way. If we look back at the way that Jesus and Paul and those early disciples did ministry, actually we can see a lot of the the parts of what revival means like one thing is they were spirit-filled right they had the spirit-filled lives and they were they're moving in the spirit you see those miraculous things going on there's this you know confidence in prayer the second thing is reasoning actually this is something that's very neglected nowadays is they would reason like whenever it talks about paul when he goes to a place and he's talking with people either uses the word arguing or reasoning that he goes, he's not just preaching, but he's he's reasoning through what it means, what this faith means. He's arguing against those counter um, ideas um, that people are bringing up. So he's either arguing or reasoning. And we see Jesus doing this all the time. Like Jesus would go to a place and he would argue with those Pharisees and he would um, proclaim something. He would explain it from different angles uh, with parables and things like that. So reasoning is really important. And then you have discipleship is the third element. And discipleship is the thorough follow-up. It's really um, taking someone, not just not just bringing someone into the faith, but then really helping them to get it and really helping them to begin to act out and to live out the word mm-hmm. in their lives. Mm-hmm. And now let's talk about in a Western church world, how do you, if you want to give them a score, how do you review this uh, three areas? Mm, yeah, I think I would, spirit-filled, <laughs> um, you would, I would say, probably a little bit higher. You've had these different charismatic movements. I think that's been helpful. There's these different, I think, emphasis on prayer, prayer and ministry and things like that. And I think that's been really good. I'd still say that there's a lot of... rising. It has been uh, rising. And I'd still say there's probably... A lot of work that needs to be done here but you do see from time to time these really spirit-filled and also word-oriented um, churches like we when we were on the east coast in virginia we saw 
some churches that were really like that, that we felt like they were really, they were kind of good and being spirit filled and and really taking the word seriously. Mm-hmm. So you do see it and you see from the, mm-hmm. these movements. Mm-hmm. So I would and say probably about Bible based is because for some spirit filled churches, um, they emphasize on the filling of the Holy Spirit, but they can go wild, not mm-hmm. um, really according to the Bible. And we're not talk about that. Um, because the example is always those apostles' example. Mm, so then yeah. that's jump to reasoning. How about reasoning? Yeah, so I think in the reasoning area has been particularly not good. Um, and I think a How big, bad it is. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I think I would probably give like maybe like a three or four out of ten um, overall from what we've seen, uh, just going from different churches as we moved and going around and um, doing ministry with churches. The reasoning area, I feel like, has been pretty low, and it kind of goes back to this mindset we mentioned again and again. Like it's, there's this way of looking at it like that if you're reasoning or you're adding too many details, that you're going beyond grace. You're trying to do something in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And because of this misunderstanding, oftentimes if you talk about apologetics or you talk about giving reasons for the faith, people are shocked. Like, why don't you just trust God? Why don't you just have faith? But actually, reasoning is a critical element in there. So, uh, yeah, I would give a pretty low score overall because it seems like no matter which denomination you go to, this is a big um, barrier in a lot of places. That reasoning is kind of put mm-hmm. to the side, a little mm-hmm. side project that maybe there'll be a Bible study or something from time to time. But even if there is, it's kind of pushed to the side as quickly as possible. And people take pride in saying, well, I don't know. Only God knows. Mm-hmm. Or uh, say what all oh, we can know physics. is. Yeah. I'm not so wise. Mm-hmm. How can I know? So. Exactly. Yeah. The false humility is huge nowadays. Now that's strong to uh, discipleship. Hmm. Discipleship, and that's again, that's a big calling in general in our ministry in general. Even outside of the the podcast, we really try to promote um, discipleship, and one reason for that is. Um, like we had mentioned in before in the cliche series, what was it? They said there's only maybe like 5% of churches in the United States are actually really like would be called disciple-making churches. Less than 5%. Less than 5% have like that third generation mm-hmm. where they're really, they, they people are not only helping people directly, but they're also the people they helped are helping others to, mm-hmm. to know and walk with Jesus. So this is happening almost nowhere. You know, just 5% is such a small percentage with all the thousands and thousands of churches in the United States. So this one is, I think, probably the saddest because mm-hmm. it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. And, some of the, and some of the reason that we, we mentioned about uh, already in our first series, and that's why we, um, we, we were uh, initially motivated, is we find out there are... Uh, Actually, more than 10 big cliches means those lies Satan really infused into the uh, modern church deeply that people believe so in every way to stop real discipleship happening. Mm. For example, we say it's really the, the, the lie is from the beginning to the end. Mm. It's the, uh, the goal of discipleship. People lost the picture of the goal of the discipleship, the picture of maturity. Um, people, really, most of people lost that. And then you cannot talk about 
uh, growing state growth stages. Everybody、Badly. should make disciples,、mm, yeah. and then there isn't a clear definition of disciple making.、Mm-hmm. So disciple making becomes everything. Everything、yeah. related to to church activity is part of the disciple making because church as a whole should make disciples. Those individuals actually inside the church who don't make disciples, they have a share. Even people just gave money. You you making disciples,、mm. and that's not. True.、Mm. Then in that case, really,、um, the twelve disciples or the seventy-two disciples of Jesus, when they heard Jesus calling of great commission of make disciples of all nations, actually only one person need to make disciples. All other people can just kind of help and in that group, and they all counted as making disciples, right? So those malicious lies are so prevalent in church that it's kind of like we see.、Um, A, a giant, but、uh, was bind up in every way that that the giant of church cannot be effective at all, almost、mm. in this area. So, so we are talking about those three、um, elements of nothing can be compromised for a real revival: spirit filling and reasoning and discipleship. Mm, mm, that's right, and you had a couple of others that are. Kind of go along with that too, and that's the firm biblical foundation, and then also having, you know, the idea of repentance, making sure that we are、um, promoting that coming into the kingdom is about like the real heart repentance. It's not just about saying like I'm sorry. It's about really like deeply like、uh, like feeling the the loss, feeling the、um, impact on on God Himself. That our sin has the impact on our brothers and sisters in the world that sin has, and, and really having repentance and a desire to change from that. These people really other... have the fear of hell.、Mm. People really have have the fear of a just God. So when, like like when we always like to talk about John Wesley's、uh, revive the revival John Wesley led、mm. uh, in in history. It's it's like that. He go everywhere.、Uh, share a similar actually、uh, sermon. He has lots of、um, those、uh, theme sermons he、mm. would speak on. And really, the the main、uh, message he gave is actually he call、uh, he was calling out to lots of those、uh, backsliders in church to infuse this godly fear in people.、Mm. Okay. That sin is a serious thing. Like when you when you keep saying you're going to hell,、mm. and that's also what、uh, what the Bible says, what the Romans says that when we act according to the Holy Spirit, it leads to life. When we、um, act according,、uh, when when we give into the to the flesh, giving to the sinful nature, it leads to death.、Mm. And it was not talking to non-believers. This letter was talking to Christians,、mm. right? Yeah. So. That and then so when we talk about these different things, when we get into this area of reasoning, reasoning through the truth and、um, providing good reasons for it, not letting things kind of、um, just sit without an answer. That's the reason why that's a big part of this foundation series. It's giving reasons for those foundational things and talking through like what are What are some major reasons we have to have confidence in these things?、Mm-hmm. Because overall, that builds faith. 
Right, because faith is not separate from reason. Actually, reason has a lot to do with faith. We put our faith in something, we can reasonably see that it's it's trustworthy. But then after we place our faith in it, after we place our trust in it, then it takes that faith to hold on to that thing, to hold on to God's trustworthiness, even mm-hmm. when we're going through trials, even when we're going through struggles and we're going through difficulties and things like that, that faith, that trust in who God is keeps us there. But it's not without reasoning. It's not like we just know God exists out of nothing and like we actually don't, we actually have bad reasons for it. You wouldn't say that. We, we have good reasons to mm-hmm. believe that God exists, good reasons to believe that he's good, good reasons to believe that his word is really his word and it's reliable, good reason to believe that we need it as people. Mm-hmm. You know, these these are all things we have good reasons for, and we shouldn't just kind of say, well, oh, well, they say we don't have good reasons. Reason doesn't matter because I believe in it by faith, so I'm mm-hmm. not even going to try to resolve that. Mm-hmm. Actually, that, that leads to a complete lack of revival. Mm-hmm. That leads to like a really... A very weak church. Yeah. So in our ministry, actually, we, we have been very nosy about uh, we try to persuade uh, apologists to make disciples, to learn disciple making. We want to persuade disciples to learn apologetics. Mm-hmm. And also we try to persuade counselors to make disciples after your work time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, because it just it's discipleship and reasoning they are together they are like it's like one cannot do without the other mm-hmm. um, that that you will be really it's really a good call you will waste most of your time if you a lack of something to in terms of preserving your fruit mm-hmm. the fruit in ministry uh, just like just like Paul. He, if he go into a place, suppose he doesn't have reasoning, because in the book of Acts, it, it, it talks about everywhere that he go, he went to everywhere and he reasoned in the synagogues, right? Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't have that, then think about where, where could he um, go to find those people he can initially give in and invest in disciple and start a church. Mm. It might be very, very slow. You need to stay in a place for a long time, make some friends, get to know some neighbor, rent a house, you know? Mm. Um, so it's all that. He, he wouldn't have a, a, a foundation. Again, that, that even he lived to 200 years old, he wouldn't finish the work he keeps finished mm. um, in, in the Bible. And vice versa. Think about it. He, he went around and he, he debated and many people come to the truth, come, come to the faith, and then without building them up, maybe 90% of them will be lost. Mm-hmm. So think about the, the, all the effort put into travel around in the great uh, in great difficulty and debate around, but then 90% of your work will be in vain. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm, good. So, yeah, and so today we want to jump into a specific topic that has to do with this, these foundational things to do with the faith. We're going to talk about the, the Old Testament. But Old Testament is very important because the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible and the Old Testament was the Apostles' Bible. However, we oftentimes hear people say uh, the Old Testament is a book of fake stories. But how do you explain all those fulfilled thousands of fulfilled prophecies? 
and those archaeological evidences. Yeah, people would also try to say that the Old Testament was copied down incorrectly so that the older works were lost or they were corrupted. And people use like the telephone came example for this. Um, but then you need to explain how the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the accuracy there compared to the text we have today, or the way that the Old Testament is talked about in the Babylonian Talmud or in those Jewish writings, that they're talking about the same books, the same um, things that we have today. Or another opposition could be that, um, okay, all of those are true facts, but they are not inspired. They're, they're not inspired by God. Mm, that's right. And so what we want to show is actually that the Old Testament is the inspired Word of God. And we're going to show this through a few different ways, three ways specifically. One is that the Old Testament has been faithfully passed down. The Dead Sea Scrolls, again, give us really good evidence that the Old Testament has not been altered, but has been faithfully preserved by faithful people. Number two is that archaeology confirms that the events talked about in the Old Testament were real events that took place in history. Number three is that this amazing amount of prophecy that's been fulfilled, like Anne had said. I think uh, Hugh Ross writes that 2,000 of the 2,500 prophecies that you can find throughout the Bible have been fulfilled already. And the 500 other ones are set in the future from now mm -hmm. and about the end times because it's about the end time right mm -hmm. yeah that's right so it's on, on, on their way so an amazing amount of fulfilled prophecy is that third point that gives us confidence in the old testament and it forms this cool story i think of when we look at the evidence and we look at the bible Actually, starting out from the first Foundation series, we talked about God's existence, and we talked about the Kalam cosmological argument about the universe having a beginning, and the beginning needing a creator, that the beginning calls out for a creator. And that's what we see in Genesis 1, is that the world was created. And then we see in God's story um, that man fell away from God and went their own way for many years. And God rose up a people in Israel to be used as an example in the world to really show what it looks like when a nation follows him to show what people's evil really looks like in this like condensed environment and the beginning of that in many ways was Abraham but then the way that the world that came onto the world stage was through the exodus with Moses and we have good archaeological evidence that points to the exodus being something that really happened and then after that, Israel if you know, fell away from God over time and turned away from God. And, but then there was a, some faithful kings that kept seeking God in the midst of the corruption that was ongoing. And one of the major ones was Hezekiah. And we see this amazing proof of how God delivered Hezekiah from the Assyrian army, this great like precursor to Rome, came to conquer Israel. And God actually supernaturally saved Hezekiah. And we have this cool archaeological evidence of that. And then lots of fulfilled prophecy along the way, showing this evidence of God's hand working through the days of Scripture.
So point number one, let's just jump in. The Old Testament text has been faithfully passed down. So, and I keep talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So basically the Dead Sea Scrolls were these scrolls that were discovered within the last hundred years. And they were this amazing discovery because one thing about the Old Testament manuscripts is that Jewish people have a custom and it's a lot like the custom that we have nowadays for American flags or for flags in other countries. They would take any scripture, if it had any damage or it began to get old or those things, and they would bury it with someone, like a priest or something like that. And that person would take that to the grave, would, would literally have that in the grave with them, and it would rot with that person. And that the reason that they did it, and I said it's like the flag nowadays, is because... Nowadays, with an American flag, it's actually law that you can't keep a flag that has a bunch of damage to it. Once the flag starts to wither and get old, you're supposed to destroy it properly and get a new flag. And the reason is because that flag represents the United States. It's a big deal. And so in the Jewish mindset, it's been a similar kind of thing, except even more so because those scrolls, that word was holy. And so any scroll that has any kind of damage or anything that kind of misrepresents God and his holiness and his purity. And so they wanted to get rid of those old ones and they would faithfully copy it down before they got rid of the old one. But because of this practice, we don't have the kind of evidence we have for the New Testament. But then comes along the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's amazing because they were found in this random cave um, in Israel that was near this Qumran community, which was kind of like an Israel monastery. But one thing that they had done in their community was preserve these older texts. And so when we found this Qumran cave uh, within the last hundred years and we opened up some of the clay jars that were there, we found these uh, almost perfectly preserved whole texts. And one of them was the whole book of Isaiah on a scroll. And when scholars go and they date it back, it dates back to around 200 B.C., So what this gives us, though, is it gives us the text exactly as it was at 200 B.C. so we can look at it. And you have to think about for this that the printing press wasn't developed until 1500 A.D. So that's 1700 years that we see the gap. So how faithfully did they preserve the text within these 1700 years of no printing press and copying it down? Actually, it's it's almost like 100 percent the same text. There's like no like major discrepancies. There's nothing like, oh, well, what about this thing? Like it's it's the same book. It's the book of Isaiah that that we have today. So that's kind of shows it gives evidence to the amazing way the high regard the Jewish people have for scripture. And so in this way we can trust that they've passed down the scriptures from the early days faithfully. Um, They haven't added things to try to improve the way they look. They haven't done those kind of things, but they have preserved it. And that's an amazing first evidence that I would say. Amazing. Yeah. The the second one we'll talk through, and I'm just going to cover these really quick. I encourage you to look them up, and you can find them by looking down below the podcast. The The first major archaeological discovery that we'll talk about has to do with the Exodus. So this is the Merneptah steel. So that's M-E-R-N-E-P-T-A-S-T-E-E-L-E. And this is an account 
written by an Egyptian king. It's not in a biblical account. And it's called a steel because it's like a big pole, a big metal, this big metal, like, um, describe it like a big, it's almost like a big pole. And all the way around it, they would write history. They would carve history into it. And so this is one that was found in Egypt. And this Egyptian king mentions the Hebrews specifically. And he mentions them being slaves and them having risen up. And then he says that he wiped out the Hebrews, which we know that the Hebrews continue to live on. But the amazing thing about this is it confirms a few things about the Old Testament. It confirms that the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. It confirms that they rose up at one point, and it confirms that they were no longer in Egypt by the time this was published. And that, so they either killed or left. Yeah, exactly. And we know they weren't killed because they still existed afterwards. The people he's referring to are the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and he even uses the word Hebrews for them. Mm-hmm. The next piece of, and there's this kind of cover-up story afterwards that because they were wiped had, out, actually. He had all the motivation to lie in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, and to kind of cover up, cover up their face to show that these people didn't conquer over them, these people didn't win in some way, that, that they won. Um, and we'll see this kind of reasoning again and again, actually. Um, the next one is iPower, which is I-P-U-W-E-R, the, his papyrus, which is just his, this ancient document that he wrote. And this one is around 1500 B.C., um, right around the time when these plagues would have been happening, around the time when the Mesopotamia steel, um, the events it's talking about probably would have actually happened. And this is an Egyptian person writing an account of these amazing horrible 10 things that happened and he he describes them and the thing is they're almost like word for word the 10 plagues of Egypt so we see these two um confirmations of this kind of amazing thing that happened right around the time that the bible is saying well these things are happening in conjunction with each other that connect to what the bible is saying that there was an exodus and that there were these amazing 10 events that seemed that um, the Bible is saying were these acts of God, and I power is describing them like there's these these acts of God that are happening, and it's the same events he's describing. He's describing like frogs. He's describing like fire from the sky, and it's this really crazy level of agreement between the ten plagues and I power's description of this eyewitness testimony in Egypt. Um, the next uh, things we'll talk about is the story of Hezekiah that we had talked about, Hezekiah um, and God supernaturally intervening when Assyria came to conquer Jerusalem. So, and this story can be found in Isaiah 37, in 2 Kings um, chapters 18 and 19, and also in 2 Chronicles. And what happens in the Bible is that Hezekiah is this good king. Israel has gone on and fallen away from God in many ways, or Judah has rather, because this is in the kingdom of Judah where Hezekiah is king, because the kingdoms have split. Hezekiah is the king at that time, and um, the king of Assyria is on the rampage. He's conquering places. He's taking over rulers all over the place. And he, you know, by in history we know that the Assyria was this great nation that was very powerful, very brutal. And they come to Lachish in Second Kings 18, and they conquer over it. And then Hezekiah even tries to send them some money. to tell them, please, just keep that city and go away. 
you know, don't try to fight us anymore. You know, he tried to kind of show some subservience to the Assyrian king to have him go away. Well, the Assyrian king took the money and also came up to Jerusalem to conquer over them. Um, and and um, then whenever he got to Jerusalem, Hezekiah took the Hezekiah heard the words of this messenger who came to the gate. And he told Hezekiah's messengers, basically, we're going to conquer over you. You know, your God can't stand before us. No other gods have stood before us. Your nation's going to fall. You need to just give up. Well, Hezekiah took that information to God and he said, God, justify your name. You know, these people are coming here and they're saying all these things. And then God actually supernaturally wiped out the army and sent the uh, Assyrian king where he had to end up going home because he didn't have the troops to fight Jerusalem anymore. Well, here's the amazing thing from this archaeological evidence. So the first piece of archaeological evidence is the Assyrian Lachish, that's L-A-C-H-I-S-H, reliefs. So the Lachish reliefs are found in this Assyrian um, palace that we found. And it's the Assyrian king who owned this palace was the king that's mentioned in 2 Kings, chapter 18. So this king of Assyria owned this palace and in it there's all these different rooms that depict major battles that were really important to the Assyrians. But the room right outside his throne room where his enemies would have been taken through, where his allies would have been taken through and they was, would have seen and kind of shown, wow, how great of a nation this is, is that battle of Lachish, the first battle we talked about in Second Kings chapter 18. So this, this in itself gives a couple of really cool pointers into Old Testament history being true. One is that the Assyrians went and conquered Lachish. That's a basic fact, and it, this is, it, shows the, it shows Lachish. It shows it being conquered by Assyria, so that's a biblical piece of history. Um, the second thing is uh, that he kept it outside of his throne room this Lachish battle. So it means that actually Israel was very well respected at that time. Contrary to what in years past um, some skeptical scholars had said about Israel, that, oh, they were just a little nation. They made up the Bible basically to help promote themselves as a nation. But really, in reality, they're very small and insignificant. Well, if the king of Assyria, this great conquering nation, actually put in his throne room, right outside his throne room, this battle of Lachish, this smaller Jewish city, then it means that the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah at that time was pretty well respected. The third point that this shows is that Lachish was there, not Jerusalem. So if Jerusalem had really been conquered, they would have put Jerusalem out there. That was the major city. That would have been the major battle to show off. But instead they put this smaller battle. You have to ask why. What happened in Jerusalem that the Assyrian king was so not proud of it that he didn't put that up in his palace. Well, actually, we have even more evidence through the Taylor prism. And this prism, again, it's like the Maranephtis steel. It's the old way of kind of documenting history. It's a prism, so it's a kind of like a big triangle that goes up really far, like you kind of like you've seen at Washington, D.C., where you have this big prism. And, but on it, they wrote the history, the Syrian history. And so there's one story there that talks about King Hezekiah. And it talks about the king of Assyria. And it mentions him by name. It's the same king mentioned in the Bible. 
And it says that he went and he caged up Hezekiah in, in his royal city like a bird. And what this tells us is something amazing because you don't, if you're bragging about a battle, you don't brag that you caged up the other person in their own city. Like that's not a way you brag about a victory. If you had a victory over them, then you conquered them and you conquered their city and you forced them to pay you, right? You, you killed the people in that city. But actually it shows that the Assyrian king wasn't able to conquer Jerusalem and that he went to Jerusalem. But that something happened that stopped him. Something amazing happened that stopped this great nation from conquering Assyria. And in comes the biblical evidence we have of what God did at that moment. And so this is a very cool confirmation of some biblical evidence. Now I'll just mention a couple of other um, things I think are pretty cool that confirm some things that happened in Scripture. Again, look them up later. The Amarna. Letters, Amarna letters, that's A-M-A-R-N-A, and these describe the overthrow of the Canaanites, and it's very similar to what we see in the Bible as far as the overthrow of the Canaanites. Uh, we have Jericho. The archaeological evidence shows something that looks very supernatural about how the city was destroyed, and of course in the book of Joshua we see that God himself destroyed the city, that he caused the walls to fall down, and so you see this the gates being uh, destroyed by an earthquake and these things, and Jericho having this kind of divine destruction, it seems like, from the archaeological evidence. The Tel Dan scrolls give evidence that the family of David ruled over Israel because it mentions specifically the household of David. So we have all this kind of cool archaeological evidence that goes around and shows these, gives evidence to the points the historical points we see in the Old Testament. Point number three is fulfilled prophecy. And fulfilled prophecy shows that there's something more than just a true story here, but that there's something divine. There's a divine touch on it. So we talked last during the last episode, um, Foundation 4, about the New Testament and about this Westmont College study where you had these 600 students, unanimous agreement on the terms, and even the American Scientific Affiliation looked at the data and confirmed that for someone to fulfill all the prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus did, it's like 1 in 10 to the 17th power, which is this huge number. It's, it's really like kind of, it's, it's very hard to imagine one person fulfilling all of these prophecies. And yet we amazingly see in Jesus' biographies, that he fulfilled all these different prophecies. So that by itself is this amazing confirmation of the Old Testament. Well, Hugh Ross and the Reasons to Believe crew, they've taken an even deeper look and just looked at prophecy overall in the Old Testament and in the Bible in general. So from about 2,500 prophecies that are found throughout the Bible, about 2,000 of them have been fulfilled to the letter without errors. Now that's an amazing statistic that even if you just said 2,000 of the things predicted in this book have been fulfilled, that's a very high number of things that have been talked about and happened. Like even if we said like one or two things and mm -hmm. then it was like, oh, that really happened, that thing you predicted, that would be amazing. Even if the other things we said didn't, but 2,000, that starts to, that not only starts, that really ought to get you to look at it 
and say, hmm, what's going on here? But then when you look at the other... People have the spirit of mm. how they cheat um, Bible text to those uh, modern fortune-telling, what's that? Mm, those yeah, the, um, stars on the newspaper? Mm, Is mm, that astrology. actually astrology? Mm. Yeah. Um, that, col- that column should forever disappear, actually. Mm. Yeah, it's amazingly more accurate than um, people's sign and those kind of things, those predictions. But yeah, a lot of times people will doubt the Old Testament, but they won't doubt those things, which is crazy. Too. How, how many times, how many scientists uh, predict when uh, the end of the, the Earth will come and how many people failed? Mm, yeah, so there's, yeah, the prediction is very hard. It's very hard to predict what will happen in the future. But actually what we see in the Bible is first it's these 2,000 uh, prophecies fulfilled, have been fulfilled, you know, by word. And then on top of that, the 500 that haven't, when you start to look at those, you see that these are the things that Jesus is saying will happen later. These are the things that we're reading in Revelation, we're reading the New Testament. These happen after Jesus. This happened during Jesus' second coming. So not only do we see that the 2,000 2000 evidences of prophecy fulfilled, but we also see that the rest all have a good explanation of why they haven't yet. So we see this kind of 100% accuracy about prophecy. This It's spooky to the, the level of, mm-hmm. of accuracy that we see in prophecy and the, the Bible's ability to predict things that will happen later. Mhm. Mhm. It means we have a big reason to believe that those other 500 prophecies, mostly about the end time, will come true. Mhm. That's right. And the, and the Bible talks about in Isaiah 46:10, it says only I, means mm. God, can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass. For I do whatever I wish. Think about all the messages we read in the book of Revelation. All of them will happen. Mm, that's right. And we can have a high degree of confidence that God's prophecies will happen when we look at how many have already happened. It's really amazing. Um, so the final thing I would mention is we have these evidences. We have the evidence of uh, seeing that the text has definitely been passed down faithfully. The Jewish people have definitely cared about it enough to make sure it's preserved. We see that archaeology confirms these different events that have happened. Even these, some of these big supernatural events are some of the main ones archaeology like speaks to. And that's amazing. And then we have fulfilled prophecy, which gives more and more evidence that, hey, there is a, there's something major supernatural happening here with this book. But then... On top of that, we have the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. We have the New Testament talking about what kind of person Jesus was. And Jesus confirms that not a jot or a tittle should pass away from the Old Testament. He talks about how he's constantly referring to the Old Testament. We know that he sees the Old Testament as trustworthy and as predicting him. So Jesus puts his stamp of approval on the Old Testament, which any of us who are Christians... We ought to consider the Old Testament as reliable and trustworthy just based on that alone. But we have this wealth of evidence that ought to give us confidence to the Old Testament. And again, it's been faithfully passed down. Archaeology is confirming real events have happened that the Old Testament is talking about. 
And then huge amount of fulfilled prophecy shows us that there's something divine about it. There's something God is speaking when we read the Old Testament. So we'll stop here. Um, just comment down below and subscribe us.